All right. Uh, well, I hope you're doing okay. It sounds like some of you are a little tired. <laughs> but uh, we're going to get in. We've got one more talk, one more time exploring these things together. Uh, we've been tackling these three challenges that have come against the doctrine of the Trinity. And the last one says it's not practical. Uh, that's going to be the challenge we tackle in this talk. Uh, so, why don't you pray with me? Father, as we uh, come to this fourth talk, we pray that you would sustain us. Uh, sustain our minds uh, so that we can engage with you and your word. Uh, but sustain our hearts that we might receive your word with humility and joy. We pray, please speak to us. Show us why it's life-transforming to know you as Father uh, with your Son and your Spirit. And we pray, please do that work of transformation in us now by your Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> it could be that you've listened to these talks and maybe you've learned some things, uh, but you're still not sure why it really matters. This is the stuff for theologians, philosophers. But why do I need to know any of this stuff? How will it help me with my everyday life, with things like deadlines, getting a boyfriend, girlfriend, finishing exams with my job. In this talk, my aim is to show you why this doctrine of this Trinity, who our God is, is actually life-transforming for every part of life. But right from the get-go, uh, let me remind you of what I shared from Scott Swain in our first talk. So in your booklet there, um, he says, Learning to praise the Trinity does not derive its importance or usefulness from its ability to serve other enterprises. Learning to know the triune God, to receive the triune God, to rejoice in the triune God, and learning to help others do the same is an end in itself, because the triune God is the ultimate end of all things. The doctrine of the Trinity, who our God is, isn't, uh, it's not important um, because it helps us get something else. Um, God is the goal. Uh, and if we are only interested in God uh, as a means of getting some other end, then ultimately we're actually kind of using God in a kind of religious consumerism. Um, if we think there's some other purpose beyond God, we haven't really seen His glory. Uh, the Westminster Catechism, it says, The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Uh, our highest purpose and calling is, uh, the end goal of our salvation is, that we might know, love, and worship our God. We get a vision of this in the new creation, uh, in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's where we will be gathered around our God, praising Him into eternity. Um, and all of this means that the doctrine of, tr of the Trinity is actually deeply practical, uh, because in this doctrine we learn to praise and to know our God as He is. Um, and in a sense, we're actually doing what we're going to be doing for all eternity. Which means that the most practical thing we can really do right now is come before our God and humbly echo the words of Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments is and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him? For from Him and through Him and for Him are all things. To Him be the glory. Amen. Amen. But having said that, you'd probably be a little disappointed if we finished the fourth talk here. Uh, so what's the plan from here? Well, I think it's actually uh, appropriate that we really spend most of our time talking about what it means to relate to God, since that's really what we've been talking about this whole week. Uh, so I want to do three things. First, I want to explore what it means for God to relate to us, which is what we call revelation. How does God relate to us? Uh, then we'll explore what it means for us to relate to God, which we primarily do in prayer. Uh, so revelation and prayer. And then the third thing we'll explore is how the doctrine of the Trinity uh, shapes identity. Uh, who I am, who you are. So let's jump in. Trinity and Revelation. And we'll start with why the Trinity is actually revealed. Uh, let me ask you this. What difference would it make if the Trinity was never revealed? 
If we never knew God as Father, Son, and Spirit, what difference would that make? Uh, And maybe you'd say, if God had never revealed himself, then there wouldn't be any God without revelation, or we're left with his atheism. But that's actually not true. There would still be a reason to believe in God, because we would still have creation. And creation itself tells us something about God. Uh, It tells us that there is a God, and that he's the creator. Have a look at what it says in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. And so, even if God hadn't stepped into this world to reveal Himself as triune, creation, the fact that there is something, tells us something about God. The heavens declare His glory. There is God, and He is our Creator. But here's the thing. Um, If all we had to go off was creation, then the most basic reality in the universe is power. Because the only thing that creation tells you is that there is a God with power to create. And that's actually what Paul tells us in Romans 1. Have a look. He says, uh, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Uh, In this verse, Paul explains that uh, what we can know about God from what has been made, uh, and then he explains what we can know, uh, and his point is that people don't have an excuse for knowing that there isn't a God, but what kind of God do you you end up with if all you have is what is made? You can see it there in the middle. Power. Power. If all we have to go off is creation, then power lies at the heart of the universe. Because all we would know that there is a God and He has the power to create. And that leaves us with a God who is raw power. And raw power is scary. Have a look at how Karl Barth describes that kind of a God. Perhaps you recall how when Hitler used to speak about God... He called him the Almighty. But it is not the Almighty who is God. We cannot understand from the standpoint of a supreme concept of power who God is. And the man who calls uh, the Almighty God misses God in the most terrible way. We could not better describe and define the devil than by trying to think this idea of self-abased, free, sovereign ability. Now, Karl Barth, he's not saying um, that God isn't almighty. What he's saying is that if you start from the standpoint of power, then what you end up with is a tyrant. If God has never revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, all we would have to go off is creation. And if all we have to go off is creation, then the most basic thing is power. And from the standpoint of power, you end up with a God who is a tyrant. And that's actually exactly what we see in every ancient culture. If you go back in time before the explosion of Christianity, um, what you'll find is that almost every single culture outside of Israel believed in gods who were fundamentally powerful. Almost every culture believed in gods and they believed that they were fundamentally powerful. Uh, And that belief profoundly shaped how ancient cultures saw the world shaped how they saw the world. So for them, power was the ultimate virtue, and weakness meant shame. Uh, And this made the ancient world cruel. Uh, Historian Tom Holland, um, he kind of explores this a bit in his book, Dominion. Have a look at what he says. The heroes of the Iliad, it's Greek stuff, uh, favorites of the gods, golden and predatory, had scorned the weak and downtrodden. So too, for all the honour that Julian paid them, had philosophers. The starving deserved no sympathy. Beggars were best rounded up and deported. Pity risked undermining a wise man's self-control. Only fellow citizens of good character who, through no fault of their own, had fallen on evil days, might conceivably merit assistance." You see what he's saying there? 
is that power fundamentally defined the ancient world. And if God had never revealed himself, we'd all, all we'd have to go off is creation. And power is the most basic reality. It leaves a cold, cruel world. But here's the good news. Power is not the most basic reality in this universe. Because before God ever created, he was already doing something else. Have a look at John 17. Jesus prays, Father, I want those who you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Before God ever created the world, there was love. And that means the most basic re reality in this universe is love. And God can only be love if He is a trinity. Because if God is not triune, then He had nothing to love before the creation of the world. The only thing He could have loved is Himself in an ugly, self-centered kind of love. Have a look at uh, how Richard of St. Victor describes this, 12th century. No one is properly said to have charity, that is love, on the basis of his own private love of himself. And so it is necessary for love to be directed toward another for it to be charity. Therefore, where a plurality of persons is lacking, charity cannot exist. This is why Allah of Islam isn't love. He had nothing to love before the creation of the world. That's why Muslims describe Allah as fundamentally omnipotent power. But that's not who our God is. Because before creation, there was a father eternally pouring out love on his son and the spirit. <coughs> Karl Barth, it's not in your booklet, Karl Barth once said that God's triunity is the secret of his beauty. His triunity is the secret of his beauty. That's why we say God is love. Uh, 1 John 4. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Now you might be wondering, isn't God also power? And yes, he is. God is also power. He is the Almighty. It's not love versus power, but consider with this with me. Think about this. Um, do you think it's right to say that before creation, uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit were all demonstrating their power to one another, um, like the gym? Um, I think a better way of putting it is to say that they were demonstrating their powerful love for one another. And their power actually defines the strength of their love infinite, powerful love and glory. And this is what we see on the cross. On the cross, the all-powerful Son, through whom all things were made, He stretched out His hands, not to command an army, but to be nailed to a cross. And in so doing, He spoke a word of love into a cold and a cruel world. Uh, Romans 5.8 but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, why does all this matter? If God had never revealed himself as Father, Son, and Spirit, then power would be the most basic reality in the universe. And that profoundly shapes the kind of world we live in. If we live in a world where we like love and like to help the weak, it is only because... God had revealed himself as the God of love who was loving uh, as Father, Son, and Spirit from before creation. And because God has revealed himself as triune, then love is the most basic thing. Uh, can you see how the Trinity actually turns the world upside down? If our world, our, if our world is radically different to uh, it was in ancient cultures, that is only because God did reveal himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, and to the extent that we lose our faith in the Trinity, we revert to a world based on power and tribalism. Um, Athanasius, he was one of the theologians that reflected on this. And he points out that um, this is why we should name God as Father <coughs> rather than simply as Creator. 
He is the creator, um, or he calls unoriginate. Have a look at what he says. It is more pious and more accurate to signify God from the Son and call him Father than to name him from his works only and call him unoriginate. Unoriginate is only power, but the Father is love, powerful love. That's why the Trinity is revealed. It puts love at the top. But now I want to pivot a little bit and explore how is the Trinity revealed? How does God reveal himself to us? And I want to start by naming something that often gets said, or at least thought, whenever we start talking about the Trinity. And this is what you'll often hear. We talk a lot about the Father and the Son, but we don't talk enough about the Spirit, at least in certain circles. Sometimes you'll hear the caricature of Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It's, uh, it's the thought that we've somehow pressed mute on the Spirit and ultimately left Him off the table, uh, leaving Him as the forgotten member of the Trinity. Um, and in response to that, the suggestion is that we should talk more about the Spirit. Um, have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought that? Yeah, we need to talk more about the Spirit. Um, I think there is something helpful about the idea that we should talk more about the Spirit. You know, after all, talking about God is never going to be a bad thing. But I do want to pump the brakes just a little bit. I want to question the assumption that we don't talk enough about the Spirit. Uh, and I think if you understand the Trinity, you'll understand why. Um, have you ever noticed that in the Bible, the Spirit is never the object of our attention? The Bible speaks about us having two objects of attention. It speaks about us seeing the Father as we see the Son. Have a look at John 14:9. Anyone who has seen me, Jesus, um, has seen the Father. And in that sense, Christian sight is placed upon the Father and the Son. Um, or better yet, on the Father through the Son. Now, it kind of feels a bit wrong, doesn't it? It kind of feels like a binity, not a trinity, which sounds a lot like heresy. Um, so, how are we going to make some sense out of this? I think if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, you'll see why the Bible speaks the way it does about us seeing the Father and the Son. And I think it comes down to understanding how the Trinity is revealed to us. Uh, and I think if we can wrap our heads around how the Trinity is revealed, then we'll see that there's actually something very deep and profound going on here. Here's the key idea. If you can see the Father and the Son, it's only because the Spirit is in you, giving you sight. We don't see the Spirit, He gives us sight to see the Father through the Son. Um, this is actually what we saw back in um, talk two. The Spirit is how God becomes present with us, in us. Um, or in talk three, remember the Father, Son and Spirit, they all do the same thing, they all reveal God but they don't do it in the same way. And the Spirit's role in Revelation is to enable us to see the Father and the Son. In a sense, we see the Father through the Son in the Spirit. Uh, the Father, He is the revealer. The Son is the revelation. But the Spirit is the effect of revealedness that it's been revealed to us. Karl Barth, he talks about this. He's got a kind of really curly way of explaining it, um, but it's kind of cool. Here's what he says. It is God himself who, according to the biblical understanding of Revelation, is the revealing God and the event of Revelation and its effect on man. God himself is revealer, revelation, and revealedness. And this is exactly what we see in the Bible. The Spirit is the one who enables us to say, Jesus is Lord. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit was not at work in us, we wouldn't be able to say that Jesus is Lord, at least in a saving way. 
The Spirit is the one who enables us to cry out to Abba, Father. Romans 8.15, we read it before. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him, the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. This is why the Spirit isn't the object of our attention. He is the one directing our attention to the Father and the Son. Um, I've got one more example from the Bible. It comes from the book of Revelation. But before we read it, let me ask you, how many are there on the, th- on the throne in the new creation? How many? Two. Have a look at Revelation 5.13. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb who's where, there with him, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. But let me ask the obvious question, where's the Spirit? Like, has the Spirit gone missing in the new creation, leaving us with only a binity? Um, Let me show you where the Spirit is. Have a look at what John says right at the start of his revelation, in Revelation 4 verse 2. John says, at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The Spirit isn't on the throne, at least in Revelation, because the Spirit is with us. He is the one who brings us to the throne, who enables us to see the throne. That's where the Spirit is, with us. And I'm not at all saying that we don't praise and glorify the Spirit as God. The Nicene Creed says we worship and glorify the Spirit along with the Father and the Son. But the Father, Son and Spirit aren't three different people. They are the one God and together they do the same thing, but they don't do it in the same way. God relates to us in an undivided but threefold way. And that actually makes it appropriate for us to talk about the three persons uh, in different ways. They're not identical. And the unique role of the Spirit is not to be the object of our attention, but the one who enables it. His role is to place our attention on the Father as He's revealed in the Son. Now, should that leave us cold and indifferent to the work of the Spirit in our lives? Absolutely not. We should be absolutely desperate for God to pour out His Spirit on us. But not because the Spirit is an end in Himself. I'm desperate for for the Spirit and to have God's Spirit in my life because it's only in the Spirit that I can experience God as my Father. The The Spirit doesn't give us an added experience with God. It's not like an additional knowledge as if you kind of know Him as Father and Son, then you kind of get the Spirit stuff. Um, The Spirit is our only experience of God. If I don't experience God in the Spirit, I don't experience God at all. And if we make the Spirit a second blessing, then we actually divide the Trinity. Because the Spirit's the one who brings us to Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, we see the Father. The Spirit is never an end in Himself. Neither is that matter, uh, Jesus, an end in himself. But when the Spirit brings us to Jesus and gives us sight, we see Jesus, and in seeing him, we see the Father. And in that experience, we truly say, I know God. Have a look at how J.I. Packer describes the role of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's distinctive new covenant role, then, is to fulfill what we may call a floodlight ministry, in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who, is, who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me, but always look at Him and see His glory, listen to Him and hear His word, go to Him and have life. Get to know Him and taste His gift of joy and peace. This is why we don't talk about the Spirit in the same way as the Father. 
which is again different to how we speak about the Son. And this language reveals how the Trinity is revealed to us. It reflects how God relates to us. But let's talk about how we relate to God. And the clearest way we do that is in prayer. And in particular, I want to focus in on the question of who should we pray to? And the reason why I want to ask this question is not to be pedantic or to be a stickler. Um, uh, But what I want to do is I want to show you that if we can answer the question of who we should pray to, then that will actually take us right to the very depths of what it means to pray to our triune God as we cry out, Abba Father. So, I want to propose that it is most appropriate for us as Christians to pray to the Father. Now, before I explain why, please don't hear me saying that it's wrong to pray to Jesus or the Spirit. I'm definitely not saying that God won't hear your prayers. You know, if you send something to the wrong address in the mail, you get a return to sender. It's not like you're going to get a return to sender on your prayer. I'm not saying that prayers to the Father are somehow like more right than the alternative. Uh, don't hear me being a Pharisee saying that the only way you should, that's the only way you should pray every other way is wrong. It's not what I'm saying. What I want to show you is that if we understand the doctrine of the Trinity rightly, we'll see that it's most appropriate to pray to the Father. And if we can wrap our heads around why, then I think we'll actually come to a deeper appreciation of what it actually means to pray to God. So, I want to start with the Bible itself, and in particular with Jesus. Because when his disciples ask him, how should we pray? This is what he said. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice that Jesus taught his disciples, and really us, to pray to the Father. And this is actually the example that we see carried throughout the entire New Testament. Um, Every clear example of prayer in the New Testament is addressed to God the Father. Uh, You can see just one example, start of Colossians. Paul says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. We always thank the Father when we pray for you. Uh, And that example of praying to God the Father is carried through the whole New Testament time and time again. But you might say, ah... There is one example of prayer to Jesus in the New Testament. And it's when Stephen prays to Jesus as he's being stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. So you can see it there in your booklet. I think the pages might be slightly muddled up around this point, but you guys can figure it out. You're clever. Um, So in in the passage there, um, it says, While they were stoning him, just at the end, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And you might point to that and see, there it is. Prayer to Jesus rather than the Father. But there are actually two details in that passage that make me question whether Stephen is actually praying to Jesus, at least in the normal sense of the word. Um, First uh, is in the original Greek, or a translation like the ESV, um, it doesn't actually say Stephen prayed to Jesus. In the Greek, it just says, he called out to Jesus. Uh, The translators of the NIV, which we have here, um, have made the decision to translate it as pray. But if you go to the ESV, it'll see them translate it as, he called out. I don't know what the CSB says. (laughs) What does it say? Um, But, so that's one thing. Here's the second little detail. Stephen can literally see Jesus with his very own eyes. You can see at the start of the passage there. Which means that Stephen, he isn't so much praying to Jesus as he is literally having a conversation with him. He can see him. And so he calls out. He's like, hey, Jesus. (laughs) He's in front of him. So that leaves us with no clear examples of prayer to Jesus in the Bible, let alone to the Spirit. The only other possible example of prayer to Jesus is right at the end of Revelation. John says, come Lord Jesus. But again, if you look at the context, you'll see that John's actually having a conversation with the risen Lord Jesus. And so it's not really prayer. Uh, And that means every clear example of prayer in the New Testament is addressed to the Father. But you might come back to that and say, well, there's heaps of things 
in the Bible that people do that we don't do. And there's heaps of things that we do that they didn't do. Not everything described in the Bible is prescribed for Christians. Uh, And this is where the doctrine of the Trinity can help us understand why it is that the Bible actually consistently teaches us to pray to the Father. And I think if we can wrap our heads around why, we'll understand prayer better. And I think uh, one of the misconceptions here is that if we only pray to the Father then we're leaving out the Son and the Spirit, as if they're just kind of hanging around, not really doing much. Um, do you guys, you guys know when you're in like a group and you're like in a group of people and you're having a conversation, but then two people just start having a conversation by themselves and everyone just kind of watches? Um, is that what's going on in prayer? You know, is Jesus just sitting there thinking, for once, would you please talk to me? Is that what's going on? I hope you can already see that that kind of thinking actually misunderstands the doctrine of the Trinity and what's happening in prayer. Because remember back to what we saw in talk three, uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit, they are all present and active in everything that God does. They work indivisibly, but they don't do the same thing in the same way. They each act in a way that reflects the relations between them. And that's exactly what's going on in prayer. Because in the act of prayer, God is hearing us and inviting us to come into relationship with Himself. And that means that the Father, Son and Spirit are all active and present when we pray to the Father. But not in the same way. They're all active, but not in the same way. And that's actually what we see in the Bible. The Bible says that the only reason we can pray to the Father is because Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Have a look at Romans 8.34. We uh, didn't quite read this, but um, it says, Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The only reason we can pray to God the Father is because Christ is right there with Him, interceding for us. If Jesus wasn't there bringing our prayers to the Father, then our prayers would fall on deaf ears. If Christ is not active in our prayers, then we're actually praying to no one. Jesus is our mediator. But what about the Spirit? Well, Paul actually speaks about the Spirit. Uh, We read it before. It says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Can you see how both Jesus and the Spirit are interceding for us. But they don't intercede in the same way, because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, but the Spirit is with us. The Spirit's with us, helping us in our weakness. If the Spirit wasn't at work in us, we wouldn't truly be praying at all. Can you see how we don't have three separate relationships with Father, Son and Spirit, as if you could have a chat to the Father and then a chat to the Son. We relate to the one God by approaching the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. And when we pray to the Father, we're not praying to the Father to the exclusion of the Son and the Spirit, we're praying to the Father through the Son and in the Spirit. Each of them are active there, hearing our prayers. And if just one of them wasn't there, we wouldn't be able to pray at all. The entire Trinity is present and at work in our prayer. And we actually see it all come together there in Galatians 4. God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. When we call out to God as Father, we're calling out in the Spirit of His Son. And so it's appropriate that we pray to the Father. Because when we do this, we relate to Father, Son and Spirit in a way that reflects their relations to one another. So that's the Trinity in prayer. 
But now I want to finish by exploring what difference makes, uh, what difference the Trinity makes for our identity, who we are. And the reason why I want to finish talking about identity is because that's one of the biggest issues in our culture today, if not the biggest issue. Uh, it's an issue which I think we can call identity dysphoria. We don't know who we are. We don't know who we are. But it's not for lack of options. Our culture actually saddles every individual with the sole responsibility of creating our own identity. No one can tell you who you are, only you can decide who you are. And so, we turn to any number of things to try and define ourselves. But the cruel fact is that having to create our own identity, it's a pressure that is always, ultimately, crushing. Have a listen to how Carl Truman describes the unique challenges of our cultural moment. He says, We now live at a time when the very issue of identity is an unstable, volatile, highly contentious, and even unprecedented matter. Today, the self is entirely plastic, moldable, and the external world, right down to our bodies, is liquid something that offers no firm ground upon which to build an identity. That, no doubt, helps to explain, for example, the catastrophic levels of depression and anxiety in the West, which, on the whole, enjoys greater material prosperity and security than has been typical throughout human history. Yes, we are wealthier and healthier than our ancestors in the 16th and even the mid-20th centuries but we do not know who we are anymore. As terrifying as that is to contemplate, it seems undeniable. Jean-Paul Sartre's comment that man is condemned to be free seems to capture something of our moment in time. For freedom without belonging is a grim burden to bear. We are stumbling around in the dark, fumbling for an identity. And none of the ones that we can make for ourselves can withstand the pressures of life. What we need is for an identity to be given to us. A true life-giving, liberating identity. Something firm upon which to build our lives, our identities. And into that space... The triune God speaks one word above all others. Child. But the Bible also says that not everyone can claim that identity for themselves. The Bible says actually there's two fundamental identities that reflect two different men. And every single person on this planet is walking in the footsteps of one of these men. All of us. Either we are in Adam, who turned his back on God in the Garden of Eden. He rejected God's rule over his life, leading to death. Either we're in Adam, or we are in Christ, who brings a resurrection from death. These are the two most basic identities. Either we are in one or the other. Have a look at how Paul describes it. 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. These are the two most basic identities. Either we are in Adam, which leads to death, or we are in Christ. Everyone exists in one of those two identities. Either we've rejected God's rule over our lives, like our father Adam, or we are in Christ. And what's happening when God saves us, He's transferring us from being in Adam to being in Christ so that we enjoy the blessings of salvation. Because when we are in Christ, what's His becomes ours. His righteousness becomes my righteousness. His wisdom becomes my wisdom. His holiness becomes my holiness. 
You see that there in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Notice the language of being in Christ. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And that language of being in Christ is what we call union with Christ. To be in Christ is to be united with him. And the reality is that when I'm in Christ, I'm united with him. And when I'm united with Christ, God sees me the same way that he sees Jesus. When God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus, the innocence of Jesus. That's why I'm declared innocent. That's why you are justified if you are in Christ, because you're united with him. And what's his becomes yours. This is actually the reality that underpins every other aspect of salvation. Have a look at what John Murray says about this union with Christ, being in Christ, transferred to Christ. Union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It is not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. Every aspect of salvation is the outworking of the reality that I am in Christ, united with Him. And when God sees me, He sees Jesus. But what does this have to do with identity? Everything. Because when I am in Christ, His identity becomes my identity. And who above all else is Jesus? He is the Son. The most basic and eternal way in which God sees Jesus is as His Son, His child. That's who Jesus is. And if I am in Christ, then that means that when God sees me, the most basic and fundamental thing He sees is His child. If you belong to Jesus, then you are above all else a child of the Father, because Jesus is above all else the Son of the Father. And in fact, the only reason you can call God your Father is because you are in the Son, Christ. And in that sense, our identity is actually caught up with and defined by the doctrine of the Trinity. And that means that every other part of salvation In fact, every other part of life is second to the reality that if you belong to Jesus, then you are God's child. Before God is your king, he's your father. Because that is the most basic reality about who God is. Uh, That's actually how Paul describes all of salvation in Romans 8. So, our predestination, justification, glorification... Why is all of that done? It's all done so that we would become God's children. Have a look here. We read these verses before. Now, we often like just notice the words like predestination and all the big words like that. Have a look out for another word. For those God foreknew, He also predestined, why? To be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God has done all of these things. Why? So that we might be conformed to the image of his son, so that Jesus might have many brothers and sisters. That's the point of predestination, calling, justification, glorification, to be a brother or a sister of Jesus. So who are you? Who are you? If you are in Christ, then above all, you are a child of God. Because above all, your Savior is the Son, eternally and perfectly. And this is what we call adoption. And adoption is being invited into the Father's love for His Son. It's the highest blessing of the Christian life. Have a look look at how J.I. Packer describes it. Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. To be right with God the judge, justification, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father 
adoption is a greater. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Let me uh, explain what that means. I'm going to share my favorite verse of the Bible with you. My favorite verse in the Bible is John 15, 9. This is what it says. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you, Jesus says. Do you know what that means? When Jesus says that he has loved us just as the Father has loved him, it means that he loves us with the same eternal, perfect, infinite, indestructible love that the Father has been pouring out on the Son from all eternity. Jesus' love for us is the same love that the Father has for the Son. Which means that the day Jesus stops loving you is the same day that the Father stops loving the Son. And the day He stops loving His Son is the day God ceases to be triune. Jesus' love for you is now bound up with the very existence of the Trinity itself. And the fact that God is triune is the guarantee that he will love you into eternity. And so whenever you doubt God's love for you, remember that as long as God is still God, he will love you. Just as the Father has loved the Son, so Jesus has loved you. And the content of that love, the shape of that love, is the cross. Christ has demonstrated and revealed his love in his sacrificial death for us. It's actually on the cross that we most clearly see for ourselves the kind of love that has been going on in the Trinity from all eternity. That's that kind of love that's been there. And so as we head back to our homes, our workplaces, let's go in the bold knowledge that we are children of God. Never let anything else define you more than that reality. Not your gender, not your sexuality, not your relationship status, not your career, not your bank account, not your failures, not your successes. Nothing but God's love for you as his beloved child. And if you aren't yet in Christ, if you are still... Still, still kind of, so to speak, in Adam, I want to urge, urge you, bind yourself by faith to Jesus. Claim that identity of being a child of God for your own. But just before I finish, let me, how, let me explain how this connects to shapes and drives Christian ministry, the thing we are on about. Because uh, for some people, sh the idea of sharing the gospel with other people can come across like we are imposing our views on someone else. And that could be like at a personal level, like we feel like we're imposing our views on someone else. But it can also be at, at, like, at like a cultural level. When we do overseas mission, are we just coming and ruining people's perfectly happy cultures by bringing and imposing our own culture? Are we just spoiling other people's happy lives and cultures by bringing this thing called the gospel. And who does that make? Uh, God. Is he just power hungry to impose himself on everyone else, to make everyone live his way, like a tyrant expanding his borders? Is that what we're a part of when we do the work of the Lord, Christian ministry? Let me give you a better image for mission, for ministry, one that I think is more reflective of who our triune God is. So, imagine with me that there is a family, but the kids are stolen from the family at a really young age, and then these kids are raised by imposters, imposter parents. 
And then imagine one day that the dad hears news that his kids are still alive and they're being raised by imposters. What dad wouldn't move heaven and earth to get his kids back? That is what God is doing in the, in the gospel. Sin has separated us. Our sin has separated us from our God, who is the only true father that we'd ever, we'd ever have. And everyone is being raised by imposters. Some of those idols have names and temples, but some of those idols are things like success or wealth. And everyone is being raised and taught to live by false idols. But God sent his own son to get his children back, back from these imposters, to adopt them back so that they could be his kids again. And when you share the gospel, when you give yourself to ministry, you are helping bring people back to the only one who could ever be their true father. That's what ministry is. And so let me ask you, what else would you want to give yourself to, your life to, other than being part of this great mission to connect people, reconnect them with the one who is their true heavenly father? What else would you like to give your life to? Like this is our highest calling in life, to invite people into the praise of the triune God so that we can stand there with him, revelation, praising the Father and the Son in the Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, to know, to love, to worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's only in the Trinity that we find ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you. We are in awe that you would adopt us as your children. We thank you for your son who died for us so that we could call you what he's been calling you forever, our Father. Give us, we pray, an unshakable knowledge that we are your children and we pray that we would live as your children for the rest of our days. Our Father, we love you. Father, we praise you and we pray that you would do this through your Son, by your Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.